Hello and welcome to the MISEM podcast, the podcast in which we talk to MISEM members and associates about their current or ongoing research into the medieval world of Central Europe. I'm Karen Culver, and today it is my pleasure to talk with Grisha Verkama about a ruler's public persona, piety or politics, a case study of Sigismund of Luxembourg. Grisha works as an interim professor for European regional history at Chemnitz University of Technology. His research focuses on high and late medieval history, where his special topics are medieval rulers and their contemporary perception in chronicles, othering and stereotyping of ethnic and social groups in the Middle Ages, history of the late Middle Ages nobility in different German regions, and the Crusades and military orders, especially the Teutonic Order in Prussia and the Baltic States. In his free time, Grisha likes to play the guitar or relax while jogging or swimming. Grisha, welcome to the Mesem podcast. Hello, thanks very much for the invitation and I'm looking forward to the interview. Thank you. Um, Please, can we start with the roles that rulers in general were expected to perform? You've highlighted in your research and papers that a medieval ruler, whether he was a local lord or the highest ruler in the country, must fulfill a range of roles and functions. Please, can you explain what these roles were and if the ruler should simply represent them in himself with other people to implement the roles, or should the ruler also implement all of those roles? Yeah, thanks for the question. Indeed, I research chronicles as the Sigismund book of Ebert Windig, and I figured out that the ruler is depicted in variety of functions. These are more or less seven, eight positions, is to say he is analyzed in a role as a judge, as an administrator of his country, of his people. He is to be seen as a politician and diplomat in negotiating processes with other rulers. He is as well a legislator. He is passing laws for his country and people. And he is representative of his rulership. So talking about certain ceremonies, He's very much a military leader, which is a central point in medieval chronicles. He's organizing warfare, but he is as well a leader himself, sometimes a knight fighting. And last but not least, our topic today, he is staged as a, as a pious ruler. Um, we, we don't see him appearing as an economist. He's not that much a politician who would debate about funding, who would debate about keeping annual budget. So apart from this, we can see him in charters as well. And there we could grasp particular strategies of rulership and they are giving for money, lending money, borrowing money, they're giving fiefdoms, and they would debate as well with, with the princes. Um, on the other hand, in charters, we find only the end of the process. Um, we can't find negotiation processes, so compromising as well. We don't know about the arriving point of the ruler, what kind of idea he had and where he ended up 
Um, and that's what's so hard to grasp rulership in itself. Uh, we can't really say is this very much dictatorial already in a way, or is this autocratic, or is it is this more uh, consensual? Um, we have this tendency right now that we say the ruler wouldn't pass any laws without the consent of the princes, and that's where his uh, representatives come in as well. So we can figure the officials like the chancellor, we can have an idea about the chancellor in the early middle centuries, but in the high medieval centuries, 11th, 12th centuries, we see other officials as well. So for example, the marshal or the chamberlain or the cup bearer, but we can't really say what their competences were, but certainly very close to the to the ruler. So this network around the court was very important and the ruler would burden or honor them with uh, certain diplomatic travels and certain tasks and obviously they would present the ruler in his role as a judge or as a diplomat. But one, one last point, the research up to now is very much struggling about rulership because we have as well this theoretical approach from theorists of the medieval time as well, from let's say John of Salisbury or Thomas of Aquin, so talking about 12th, uh, 13th century, and they are stretching the idea that the ruler had four cardinal virtues, which is that to act uh, in a prudent, in a brave, in a just, and in a modest way. But this is very superficially, and uh, it, it describes the conflict of modern research to to get closer to this rulership, how to describe it. And I found it helpful to look very deep into the chronicles and to look for qualitative bits when he is staged as a pious ruler, but as well for quantitative bits. Uh, how much is he staged as an administrator? How much is he staged as a military leader? How much is he staged as a judge? Which helps us more to understand what the authors had in mind while describing, while de depicting the room. Interesting. I like that dichotomy of the king burdened and honoured his people with tasks. Um, you mentioned piety. That is a quality that we don't use very much today. What was piety to the medieval mind? How was it demonstrated? Was it deep private faith, self-promoting public actions, charitable works? What was perceived by piety? Um, it's an easy and a difficult question. I'd even say that religious living person nowadays would more or less understand approaching of piety as the way as medieval uh, people would as well. Uh, we are talking about living uh, in accordance to the Bible. We are talking about imitating the life of Jesus Christ and of his apostles. Um, we are talking about the, uh, the awareness for the eternal life after death and activities which you as a very pious person could uh, perform are prayers for the deceased, uh, the memoria of uh, deceased people, relatives, are very important. Um, you can give alms, which is very important. Um, you can go on pilgrimages, for example, to Rome or to Jerusalem, 
uh, as well to uh, Santiago de Compostela. But uh, where you can't find, at least in the chronicles, you don't see too much charitable works. So the ruler himself washing like Jesus Christ the feet of poor people. You won't see this too often. And piety is always fight, contrast between humility and too much luxury as well. All those orders who had been founded, like the Benedicts or the Cistercians or the Dominicans, they all had been founded with the idea to be humble, but they all become overwhelmed by the luxury. They, the churches becoming richer, and you really want to show the churches as nice places, and therefore you need money. And this is a contrast which you have all the time in the churches. Yes, there is always that dichotomy of people giving wealth to the church while expecting the church to be poor. It's, it's a difficult one. And I well take your point about a king who was aiming to appear wonderful and noble, who also needed to appear pious and therefore humble. So if a king was truly pious, they must believe everything the church tells them, believe everything the pope tells them. Therefore, to quite an extent, giving the church more power than the king. Was this what the population expected? No and yes, because the uh, Pope obviously was the highest representative of the Church of Rome. And on the other hand, the Pope developed only up to the 10th, 11th century as being superior of all the archbishops and bishops basically had been the Bishop of Rome, so one among others. And uh, as Emperor and uh, the Holy Roman Empire uh, developed, it's not really clear, so the Pope has superiority or the Emperor, and that's why we must remember that uh, in the time of Sigismund, we had this great schism from 1378 until 1417. We had three popes uh, in, in a time, in Rome, in Avignon, and in Pisa. This was in a way abstract, but in a way as well very concrete, because a Christian community wouldn't know whom to refer to. And we had not only heretics like the Hussites, but as well official Christian who were very much criticizing the Pope. And very difficult to not criticize the church when you had three popes. Interesting dilemma. Now, your research that we are focusing on today is on Sigismund of Luxembourg, the King of Hungary and Holy Roman Empire, as seen through the eyes of Eberhard Windeck. Windeck was a German merchant who rose to become a close financial advisor to Sigismund. After he retired, Windeck wrote of his experiences of working with Sigismund, which are now the Chronicles, and they are fascinating. But Windeck himself appears pious. However, in his books, he mentions the piety of Sigismund and his actions of piety almost in passing. Why do you think Windeck made so little the mention of the piety of Sigismund? Yeah, um, this question needs to be divided in two parts. Um, Ebert Windig lived more or less as a contemporary of Sigismund. 
He lived until 1440. Sigismund himself died 1437, so difference of three years. He was very close to the court of Sigismund. He was a very successful merchant, which, which gives a special taste as well to his chronicle, because normally chronicles are written by clerks. And he was able to write at the end of his life, so covering as well the whole reign of Sigismund. Sigismund was first of all the Hungarian king from 1387, and he was uh, afterwards the Holy Roman King for about 30 years. And Ebert Windig was engaged to the court and uh, was performing at the court as financial advisor and as an envoy of Sigismund for 10 years. So he had very much an insight to this court. Uh, and he described in his book, which contains about 500 uh, pages in the edition. So it's quite a thick book. And he describes his own career and his own travelers as merchant. And on his travels, he would as well mention that he, he visited a lot of places with relics, uh, churches, uh, tombs. For example, he was in Paris and he saw there the holy throne of thorns. Uh, and Sometimes he was accompanying Sigismund on his travels as diplomat, as a politician, as ruler, as well to England and as well was visiting Canterbury. And somehow he passes the opportunity to stage Sigismund in this visiting the grave tomb of Thomas Beckett. Sigismund isn't present there. So this is um, strange. Uh, we have another scene where they are in a, in a monastery and Sigismund is there together with Robert Jungwig. And uh, he, he's describing that they are very much interviewed by a book, a holy book, which Sigismund worshipped and he's very much interested in this. So now and there we can find small bits where the piety of uh, Sigismund is as well described. But first of all, it's very important to Ebert Windig to stage his own piety. It's to pass this information to his reader. That he is on his travels, uh, he is very much pious and wants to visit all these places. Um, uh, speaking of Sigismund, we have to differentiate two groups of scenes. One scene is where he is publicly and there's he politically staged as pious and as being humble. And this is always, almost always, in opposition to the high-ranking Persian people of his time. Um, for example, he is in a scene where he should be crowned as emperor in Rome. Uh, 1433, the cardinal, uh, an unnamed cardinal, he stayed anonymous, which is maybe important, he wants to put the crown onto the head of a future emperor. And he asks him, are you born in wedlock and are you pious? And the king says, yes, I am, but you are not, because you cut off women addressed. I know about this. I won't like to, to crown me. Um, this is only a scene where you could say the opportunity of a coronation as an emperor implies so much, uh, so much possibilities to stage him in a very religious ceremony, riding in Rome, coming at least St. Peter, getting crowned there. There's so much ceremonies which you could uh, use and describe. He doesn't use the opportunity, but more he uses the opportunity 
to juxtapose the piety of uh, Sigismund in opposition to false piety, to the bad behavior, to the corruption and greediness of high clergy. And I give you another scene where the Pope himself is uh, confronted. Uh, it is only on the Council of Constance where he had been elected as Pope. So out of the three Popes, you make one Pope, Martin V. And Martin V was approached by a high Bavarian family who wanted to marry their children, which are too close to each other as relatives. They wanted to get them married. And the Pope said, yes, I approve this and give them the dispense which he needed. And Sigismund came outraged, furious to this council and say to the Pope publicly, you are there to forgive sins, but you're not there to allow sins. And this is real hard confrontation where you see again this high-ranking clergy, the Pope, totally corrupt and greedy, and Sigismund himself. This is uh, this is not maybe a last example where you have this two swords, a secular sword and the spiritual sword. He is uh, talking at the Council of Basel shortly before his death, 1437, and Quindec stretches. He never heard such a beautiful speech. And all the cardinals and official people from the church agreed. They ran after uh, Sigismund, who was leaving the council, says, you have to come back, you have to be the leader of the council, and you should decide over the Pope. And this is where Ewald Windig mentions in his person is united the secular and the spiritual world like never seen before. And this shows how this piety of Sigismund is in a way politically used and staged. But, and there's the second uh, strain of it, there are uh, several scenes where you can see Sigismund in only one sentence, describing more a change of state, like it's raining and now it's sunny again. So these small bits, these small scenes, where Sigismund appears unfiltered and authentically as a very pious prince or uh, emperor or king, uh, there are a couple of these scenes as well. He's, for example, organizing an army against the Hussites. It's only by passing, it's uh, mentioned that he's passing ordinance for this army. They should attend to the mass and they should do penance. And there's a passage, a small one sentence, where the imperial regalia are transferred from Bohemia to Nuremberg in South Germany. And they stop by in Buda, the capital at this time in Hungary. And there's mentioned that a procession took place around the town. And only shortly mentioned this procession takes place every year. And it's only briefly mentioned. There's no fuss uh, made around this. And another, maybe last uh, scene would be when Sigismund is dying. You could do a lot of ceremony out of this process, the funeral masses, but he doesn't. There's only six lines. And he says, Sigismund fears where the death is coming up. And he wants to be dressed as emperor, but as well as clerical ruler's robe for this last mess. Afterwards, he gets dressed in his funeral robe and dies on a throne. But right away, there's no funeral messes. It's nothing described at, uh, at all. So this is the second string or the second group which we have. Short passages where we can see this is staged in an authentical way. You were talking about Sigismund fighting with the Hussite rebellion, which made me think something I'd never really thought about before. 
which is why I love doing these interviews. We have Vindek saying quite clearly that the church is corrupt. It has excess wealth. It is not pious. And Sigismund is fighting the Hussites. But the Hussites are also wanting to reform the church to reduce the excess wealth, to go back to the concepts of piety and poverty. Um, do you think Vinduk was simply echoing the popular thoughts or how, how did this dichotomy work? Yeah, um, it's in a way he's echoing the popular opinion and he's reasonable in what, what he's saying. As I already underlined, we had this great schism at this time, running up to 1417, very much the lifespan of Ebert Windig and of uh, Sigismund. And uh, the emperor and uh, the kings of the time were very much involved in this as well. And Sigismund would uh, take some ideas of the Hussites like he invited Jan Hus over to the Council of Constance to debate there. And he gave him guarantee to go back afterwards unharmed to Prague, which we know didn't take place. It was Sigismund, he was taking himself back from this process of uh, sentence of, uh, to death of Jan Hus. And um, therefore, I'd say the notion of all this greediness, all this corruption of churchmen at this time was very much uh, broadly known, broadly discussed. And so Ebert Windig was um, echoing, in a way, an opinion, broad, broad opinion at this time. Which would make some sense. It just seems strange to me to be saying effectively the same as Jan Hus while fighting him. He was fighting him because um, after the death of his brother in 1419, uh, Sigismund came to Bohemia to become king. Afterwards, he had the Sefenestratio in the new town of Prague. Official counselors of uh, Sigismund would be kicked out of the window and uh, came to death. And uh, he couldn't bear uh, behavior like this. And so the whole situation, in a way, became to an extremer stage. And uh, there was a known a dynamic in there. And uh, Sigismund waged warfare on them. Uh, and, and he was not successful with this. The Hussites were very successful in those 10 years. And the Hussites themselves were very outraged and furious about the fact that Jan Hoss and Hieronymus of Prague, another very important central figure of this time, were sentenced to death at the Council of Constance. That's why this whole situation became more and more extreme. That makes a lot of sense. I think even today we quite often will see that we might agree with protesters, but we don't agree with the way they're protesting. Yeah, exactly. And uh, in a way, you're in a stiff position as a politician like Sigismund was, because Jan Hus refused to acknowledge the, the seven sacraments. And this is already like a major column where only 100 years later, Martin Luther would uh, do it himself. And to be a little bit generalizing, but one could say that Jan Hus was simply uh, born 100 years too early. And Martin Luther himself, for example, he could have ended as Jan Hus, but he didn't. So the time was ripe in a way. 
Yeah, yeah, and who set the path for for the Reformation. Exactly. Um, for my final question, I would like to look more broadly at the whole public representation of medieval rulers. Was Findex' staging of Sigismund typical for a late medieval ruler in relation to their public or their personal piety? Are there other reports of late high medieval monarchs and their piety? And more important, how much of this piety was purely a public political show in the way that a modern politician will declare him or herself to beat corruption and then be as corrupt as everybody else? How much was it the public persona that was required? We put this into two different uh, strengths. Ebert Windig was very close to Sigismund and he was very grateful for him because he got a lot of, he got a thief in, uh, in mines. He got the right to earn their taxations for very, very important passage, river passage. And he was very grateful to Sigismund for that. And uh, on the other end, we have other chronicles of this time is Andreas of Regensburg or Laurentius von Gersova, which is a Hussite chronicle. We have Thomas Ebendorfer, who was the chancellor of the Vienna University. And they would put Sigismund in a different way. They would, uh, they had other reasons for writing. Although one might say that uh, they don't have that broad approach like Ebert Wimmick. We don't see Sigismund in such, uh, so much aspects of his life, of his activity because they had other approaches, other, let's say, priorities. But nonetheless, uh, Sigismund appears in there and he is often depicted critically. Lorenzis of Chesovo, for example, says, well, he fought the Bohemian population, which is his own people because he's the king of Bohemia. He shouldn't act like this. He shouldn't hang up uh, women at their breasts because, well, just to, uh, to very cruel activities at war, just in a way of penance for, for them, and Andreas of Ringsburg wrote about this, that he had a very pious death and he penitenced as well. But this doesn't outweigh all the sins which he did during his whole life. So he's very critical about Sigismund. Once again, it's always the causa scribendi. The causa scribendi, the reason for writing for Eberhard Windig is to criticize the high clergy. And he did so in staging Sigismund in different, as we already had this examples, which are broader described. But the second group is the small sentences, where Sigismund is really described in a pious and authentic and unfiltered way. And I'd say uh, it's a tricky question for me because I have some work ahead of me still to do, because you have to, to read this chronicles, this late medieval chronicles, very thoroughly. And so it's still a lot of work to do to read them through. But I did this already with high medieval chronicles from the 12th century. And there you can say, for example, Gesta Frederici, which is Otto of Freising, which is a bishop of Freising and a very high official of in Frederick Barbarossa's realm. And he says in one sentence, Frederick likes to pray every day privately. So this is only this one sentence. We see him staged as well in other passages where he's staged as a religious public ruler. But there he's shown as a, as a private, in only this short scene. And this is more or less the same like we find this in Sigismund's case, 
the, the places where you find authentic and really unfiltered are always very short and you almost can overlook them very, very fast. Um, and it's important to, to get to count this uh, small passages in as well. To speak maybe of another example, which is quite well researched, is the father of Sigismund, Charles IV, and the piety of Charles IV by Martin Bauch, very much researched. He did a PhD on this, and he speaks about outwardly shown piety. He says, uh, ostentative frömmigkeit, ostentatious piety, which Charles IV shows but on the other hand, it's in a way a unique situation because Charles IV left an autobiography. So he did something which no known ruler else did. And out of this autobiography, he shows and describes a lot of visions uh, given by God. So the, this is shown piety. But on the other hand, this is totally untypically for chronicles to write about rulers having visions. So this is, this is another type of one might say another genre. Um, if we stay in the genre of the chronicles, we can say that there are these political loaded situations where you want to uh, have legitimacy for descendants or for your own dynasty, uh, and you have the small passages where we have unfiltered authentic piety. And what I want to maybe because you, you asked for other sources which we can put our attention to, um, I'd say there are some ego documents, testimonies, letters. But these letters are most of all the time written by clergymen and not by the rulers themselves. So this is as well, again, filtered informations which we get. And maybe we have as well what we could look at are the princely meetings where the princes coming together and sometimes we have protocols of those meetings and we can say is a mess integrated or is some pious acts are there integrated but on the other hand this had been not really sources these are protocols very secular protocols and you wouldn't expect having a lot of pious acts in there um, at the end what is very what i find very important to underline and emphasize is that the genre, staying with the medieval chronicles, the genre of the medieval chronicles are as simple as that. They describe activities of rulers. They show the ruler in action. And if we, again, look at these different types of action, legislator, judge, administrator, and so on, on it is somehow striking that the piety and pious ruler isn't that much described in there. One would expect a much broader field for this piety because as one would expect religiousness of the people of the time as being omnipresent. Uh, and this is simply not given in the chronicles. And what kind of question do we, what kind of answers do we draw from that? As I shortly mentioned, Einhard Charmont, he is not uh, in the, so the emperor, the most important emperor, he is not depicted in his Vita Caroli Magni as on the background a lot of assistance from God because he stands for himself. If you have a person who is too humble, too devout, too much uh, dependent from God, then he can't stay for himself as a powerful leader. And this might be, in a way, an answer, but this needs to be, uh, it needs to be done more research on this. So this is an answer for future research. 
And what I'm catching from everything you said is that the reader must be very aware who the writer was and who the writer was writing for. So the audience, which is the same as today. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting points. Very, very interesting. Thank you. And unfortunately, on that very interesting point, we must leave it there. Grisha, thank you so much for sharing your research, your interest on this. It was an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thanks very much, Karen. I very much enjoyed it. Yes, so did I. Um, I learned so much doing this work. Today, I have been talking to Grisha Verkama about his research into the contemporary perception of Sigismund of Luxembourg in terms of public piety or private piety and politics. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, and I certainly enjoyed it. Please do look out for the next MISEM podcast in which we talk to MISEM members and their associates about their current or ongoing research into the Central Europe medieval period. And if you have research you or your colleagues are doing and would like to talk about it, please do contact me through the MISEM board or MISEM website administrator. I'm Karen Culver for the MISEM podcast. Thank you and goodbye until the next time. Mm-hmm.